1: Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon and English study group, and we're studying the words of the Buddha in this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. We're in volume 13, which is titled Generosity. We're going to be exploring chapters 41 through 50 today in class. And if you've read these prior to class, that's wonderful because you may have some questions that you've come into class with. But if not, we're going to actually be reading these during the class and then I'll share some teachings on each individual chapter, and then I'll open up to any questions that you guys might have. The way that we start this class is typically with a meditation in order to kind of prepare the mind for retaining the teachings. So I'm going to guide you guys just a very brief amount of guidance through a a very small meditation, just a a few minutes, maybe five, ten minutes, in order to prepare the mind for actually studying. And then we'll actually go into the class and studying the chapters 41 through 50 of the volume 13 generosity. And if you don't have these books, you can download them from buddhadailywisdom.com. But I'm going to be displaying them in our class today. So if you don't have them, you'll be able to see them in class. But then for future classes, you might decide to download them and actually read them prior to class and or after class. So I'd like to welcome all of you and invite you to join for some meditation. So if you'd like to take a position, like I mentioned, I'll just give some very brief guidance here because typically the people who are studying in this class have already developed a certain level of meditation, so they already are familiar with the body positioning and what to do with the mind. Instead, what I'll do is I'll just chant, go into meditation, and then chant to come out, let you understand to stay focused on the breath, and then anytime the mind is off the breath, you just cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath. So typically I would guide this, but in today's class, I'm not going to provide any guidance for that. Just understand what to actually do is first get the breath established, then focus the mind on the breath. And then anytime the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go and come back to the
2: breath. Arahang sama sama to makewa putang makewa nang apiwa te mi sawa ka to Namang namasa me. supati pano makwato, makawato sa waka Napmoe sap hako ato Ara toes ma saputa sa Napmoe sap hako NAP MOI RASA BHAGVATO ARATO SAMHASA PUTASA ITI PISO MAHAGVA Arahang sama samuto. We cha jaranang samuno. Saka to ro kawito. teropuri sa dama sati sata I'm t está We ma not Anu tero sa dama sati sata manu sana
1: If you'd like to make your way out of meditation we'll transition over to our class where we're going to be reading each chapter. Chapters 41 through 50 and then after we read the chapter then we'll open up to teaching. I'll actually share some teachings and we'll open up to questions that you guys might have related to the teachings. And you can put those questions into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom or you can raise your hand electronically in Zoom and ask any questions that you like.
3: Yes, sir. I'll read uh, chapter 41. The Service of Gifts of a Wholesome Person, Second Discourse. Monks, there are these five gifts of a wholesome person. What five? One, he gives a gift out of confidence. Two, he gives a gift respectfully. Three, he gives a timely gift. Four, he gives a gift unreservedly. Five, he gives a gift without injuring himself or others. One, because he has given a gift out of confidence, wherever the result of that gift is produced, he becomes rich with great wealth and property, and he is handsome, attractive, graceful, possessing supreme beauty of complexion. Two, because he has given a gift respectfully, wherever the result of that gift is produced, he becomes rich with great wealth and property and his sons and wives, slaves, servants, and workers are obedient. Lend an ear and apply their minds to understand three because he has given a timely gift wherever the result of that gift is produced, he becomes rich with great wealth and property and timely benefits come to him in abundance. Four, because he has given a gift unreservedly wherever the result of that gift is produced, he becomes rich with great wealth and property and his mind inclines to the enjoyment of the five kinds of fine sensual pleasures. Five. because he has given a gift without injuring himself or others wherever the result of that gift is produced he becomes rich with great wealth and property and no damage comes to his property from any source whether from fire, floods, kings, thieves or displeasing heirs these are the five gifts of a wholesome person
1: all right thank you Miranda so here as we've discussed at other chapters in this book as you're giving a gift to practice generosity, there shouldn't be the expectation of getting something else in return because that's not pure generosity. That would be like, I'm only giving this gift because I want something in return. This is craving, desire, attachment. It's not gonna produce wholesome benefits. So what the Buddha is doing here is he's explaining the natural law of Gamma of what will and will not occur so that you understand as things are happening in your life, and you're experiencing certain wholesome results, you understand why that is. Because the Buddha teaches about generosity and how this is so important for one's practice, and it eliminates craving, desire, attachment. But there's all these benefits that are occurring because of practicing generosity. The number one thing that the Buddha talks about, and we discuss this in other chapters in this book, about how it eliminates craving, desire, attachment, or equips the mind the way that the Buddha explains it. And here, this is just another chapter, another discourse explaining some of the results of giving a gift. But you shouldn't be focused on this and thinking that you're only going to give a gift in order to acquire these things. Because if that's why you're giving a gift, you're not going to actually be able to experience the things that the Buddha is actually talking about here. So this is a matter of understanding the wisdom of the natural law of karma and what's actually occurring and what's not occurring versus having the craving for these things to occur. So here he's explaining these five things that are experienced that when you give out of confidence, you give respectfully, you give a timely gift unreservedly, and without injuring yourself or others, then these are the results that one would experience. By providing a gift out of confidence, this is where the Buddha is saying, "Okay, you know, if there's rebirth essentially or wherever the result of that gift is produced, then there's these benefits of being rich, wealthy, with property, handsome, attractive, graceful, with supreme beauty of complexion. But of course, if you're giving for those reasons, this isn't going to actually occur. So here the Buddha is just explaining these different things, and it's helpful for you to understand, but it shouldn't be something that is part of the reason why you're giving the gift. Your generosity should be without any expectation of anything in return, and you know that you're doing that in order to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. Down here in the explanation, or what I'm sharing just as a result of this particular chapter, is just providing some insight to help you further understand what it is that the Buddha is actually explaining, that here, by giving a gift with confidence, there shouldn't be any remorse or regret in the gift that you give. So now we're kind of in that season of gift giving with all the different holidays that exist around this time, that if you give a gift and you feel remorseful that you gave too much or that you gave too little, then there isn't this confidence in the mind. And then when you give a gift, it should be done respectfully with gratitude and appreciation for the individual that you're giving the gift to. Giving a gift at the proper time is based on a timely need, that if somebody needs a certain thing that perhaps they're going on a long trip or it's a particular holiday, you might be giving a gift at a proper time or a timely gift. Giving a gift without reservation or holding back with selfishness, but understanding that there needs to be a practice of the middle way, where even though the Buddha uses this word unreservably, he's not saying to exhaust your resources. This is where you need to look at the Buddhist teachings in their totality and understand more of what he's saying. Whereas if you looked at just this discourse and this word of unreservably, you might think that you're to exhaust your resources, but other discourses that he talks about generosity, you can see where he's talking to practice this middle way. Whereas if you never gave gifts, then the mind is selfish. Whereas if you gave to the point where you exhausted your resources, then this is going to produce unwholesome results as well. So without reservation means without holding back or without selfishness that you willingly give is essentially what's being described there as being unreservably or willingly give gifts. And then without causing harm to yourself or others is that if you were to steal something and then give a gift that would be causing harm to others and it's causing harm to yourself too or if you were as i talked about exhausting your resources and you were not able to afford food water clothing shelter medical care this would be causing harm to yourself or if you felt like you had to work you know 100 hours a week in order to get a little bit of money together, in order to give a gift to somebody, this would be harming yourself in order to give a gift. So the Buddha is saying, you shouldn't cause harm to yourself or others, but instead find this middle way to ensure you're not causing harm to any beings, including yourself. And this is what will produce wholesome results in addition to everything else the Buddha talks about related to generosity. This is one area to understand as it relates to practicing generosity. What questions do you guys have on this chapter?
3: It does not appear that there are any questions on this chapter, sir.
1: Okay, this is chapter 42. Um,
3: Yes, sir. Would you be interested in reading the even-numbered chapters, sir?
1: Sure, I can do that. So chapter 42 is titled, A Wholesome Person is Born for the Good, Welfare, and Peacefulness of Many. Monks." When a wholesome person is born in a family it is for the good welfare and peacefulness of many people it is for the good welfare and peacefulness of his mother and father his wife and children his slaves workers and servants his friends and companions his departed ancestors the king the heavenly beings and aesthetics and brahmins just as a great rain cloud nurturing all the crops appears for the good welfare and peacefulness of many people so too when a wholesome person is born in a family it is for the good welfare and peacefulness of many people it is for the good welfare and peacefulness of his mother and father his wife and children his slaves workers and servants his friends and companions his departed ancestors the king the heavenly beings and aesthetics and Brahmins. The wise person, residing at home, truly lives for the good of many. Day and night, diligent toward his mother, father, and ancestors, he respects them in accordance with the teachings, remembering what they did for him in the past. Firm in confidence, the devoted man, having known their wholesome qualities, respects the homeless aesthetics the aesthetics who lead the spiritual life. Beneficial to the king and the heavenly beings, beneficial to his relatives and friends, indeed, beneficial to all, well-established in the wholesome teachings, he has removed the stain of selfishness and fares on to a heavenly world. When a person supports his parents and respects the family elders, when his speech is gentle and courteous and he refrains from argumentative words. When he strives to remove meanness, is truthful, and eliminates anger. The tavasatim something, (laughs) heavenly beings, call him truly a wholesome person. So here the Buddha is talking about characteristics of an individual who is learning and practicing these teachings, becoming more and more wise about how to function through these teachings. And what the Buddha is saying is somebody who does this is going to be very much beneficial in the community for the good welfare and peacefulness of many people. Here he's addressing a man or men, so therefore he's using the gender of he, but this is applied to multiple genders. If you've read the beginning of these books, you can see where I mentioned that you can apply these teachings to all genders or non genders that we might have today or at some point in the future. So as somebody, be- gains more and more wisdom in these teachings, they're gonna be functioning in a way that's not harmful to others. And the Buddha gives some indication of this when he talks about the certain speech and the way that someone interacts here, where he talks about uh, this person supports their parents and respects their elders, speaks gentle and courteous, refrains from argumentative words, and strives to remove meanness, is truthful and eliminates anger. So here you can see if somebody's functioning this way, or if you're choosing to function this way, then this is gonna be very beneficial because you're not causing harm to others through the way that you interact in the world. And that's what the Eightfold Path is providing a practitioner, is helping you to understand the teachings, particularly around moral conduct, so that you're not causing harm to others, therefore harm won't come to you. And he talks in here and the whole reason why this is in this book is about removing the stain of selfishness uh, that this individual who is functioning in a wholesome way based on the teachings wouldn't have selfishness in the mind that instead they would be willing to give and share and of course the buddha is relating this typically to the heavenly world and rebirth in the heavenly world or the heavenly realm because the same things that lead to enlightenment also leads to rebirth in the heavenly realm. So if you fall short of enlightenment, then there will be rebirth in the heavenly realm. So if you are practicing the teachings on the Eightfold Path, and for some reason in this life, you don't get to enlightenment, then there's going to be rebirth potentially in the heavenly realm. And one of the things that promotes rebirth in the heavenly realm is the practice of generosity. And as I've mentioned many times, the goal of these teachings isn't to be reborn or to be reborn in the heavenly realm, because those beings still need to get to enlightenment. And they tend to be complacent and lack motivation to be able to do that but it's possible for those beings in the heavenly realm to get to enlightenment they're still in the cycle of rebirth and oftentimes are reborn into other realms at some point once their lifespan in the heavenly realm extinguishes if they haven't gotten to enlightenment In the heavenly realm so the goal would be to learn reflect and practice in this life so that you can then train the mind and get to enlightenment in this life and then there's no more rebirth in any realm whatsoever what questions do you guys have on this chapter
3: yes sir it's clear how this person this wholesome person would be directly beneficial to those around them could this person also be almost indirectly beneficial because people around them are watching how they're interacting in the world and maybe follow their example. And then that could be a way that they're benefiting those around them too, sir.
1: Yes, this is one of the benefits that not only is it through their interactions, but even other people just observing the way they interact in the world. And this is why I sometimes share that your practice of getting to enlightenment, it's benefiting you those close to you and all of humanity, because not only are you not causing harm to others, but then others have this example of how to function in the world. And for those people that take notice of somebody who's speaking gentle and kind and respectful and polite, and then they choose to adopt those same qualities, that's going to be helpful for them. And this is why the Buddha also talks at other parts in his teachings about how a community should kind of make space for enlightened beings and make space for people who are even in the first second and third stage of enlightenment because having these individuals in your community is only going to help more and more people in the community. So if we went around and we purchased things at a cashier and we went to stores and we went to the gas uh, to get gasoline and we were going to hospitals and different places and we're disgruntled and angry and hostile, that's gonna affect those people and more and more people's minds are going to adopt that kind of way of being. But conversely, if we're practicing these teachings and we're training the mind to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, smiling at people saying you know how's your day going or after you do a transaction at a cashier you might say have a wonderful day and it puts a smile on people's face and they really enjoy that you know i, I uh, noticed this frequently even here in thailand this morning i went to 7-eleven to get some soy milk and a little something to eat before i was teaching class at the temple and i noticed the girl was very quiet and she had a little bit of look on her face that she was maybe still waking up because it was kind of early in the morning And after the transaction, I said in Thai, I said, you know, have a very wonderful day. And she brightened up. She was like, oh, thank you so much. And this was a very, in my view, this was very helpful for her to have somebody say that to her because then she brightened up a bit. And now her next interaction with the next person can be more bright. And then that spreads to that person. So just like disgruntledness uh, can be spread around a community, this brightness and this cheerful way of being, this radiance of the enlightened mind and the qualities of enlightenment can also spread around a community without any kind of direct teaching necessarily. But just by functioning more and more like an enlightened being and actually attaining enlightenment, this is very beneficial for a community to have an individual like this uh, amongst them. Because like you're saying, there's this role model and this kind of indirect experience of interacting with someone who is more enlightened or is enlightened and now that helps to bring this brightness into the community.
3: Wonderful. Thank you, sir.
1: Mm -hmm. You're welcome.
3: Uh, It does not appear there are any other questions at this time.
1: Okay, so we'll move to chapter 43.
3: Yes, sir. Uh, Fragrance of wholesome people spreads against the wind. Here, Ananda, in whatever village or town a man or woman has gone for refuge to the buddha the teachings and the community he or she is virtuous practicing moral conduct and of wholesome character abstaining from the destruction of life taking what is not given sexual misconduct false speech and liquor wine and intoxicants substances that cause heedlessness the basis for heedlessness and he or she resides at home with a mind free of the stain of selfishness, freely generous, open-handed, joyful in letting go, devoted to charity, joyful in giving and sharing. In such a case, ascetics and brahmins in all quarters speak praise saying, in such and such a village or town, a man or a woman has gone for refuge to the Buddha, the teachings and the community. He or she is virtuous and of wholesome character Abstaining from the destruction of life, taking what is not given, sexual misconduct, false speech, and liquor, wine, and intoxicants, the basis for heedlessness. And he or she resides at home, the mind free of the stain of selfishness, freely generous, open-handed, joyful in letting go, devoted to charity, joyful in giving and sharing. The heavenly beings and spirits, too, speak praise, saying, in such and such a village or town, a man or a woman has gone for refuge to the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. He or she is virtuous and the wholesome character, abstaining from the destruction of life, taking what is not given, sexual misconduct, false speech, and liquor, wine, and intoxicants, the basis for heedlessness. And he or she resides at home with a mind free of the stain of selfishness, Freely generous, open-handed, joyful in letting go, devoted to charity, joyful in giving and sharing. This, Ananda, is the fragrance that spreads with the wind, against the wind, and both with and against the wind. The fragrance of flowers does not spread against the wind, nor the fragrance of sandal, tagara, or jasmine. But the fragrance of wholesome people spreads against the wind. The wholesome person's fragrance fills all quarters.
1: All right, thank you, Miranda. This is actually a good connection to what we were just talking about, is that as you function more and more through the teachings, this is, yes, going to be helpful in the community, but also it's going to help build a reputation for you that then becomes beneficial. An individual shouldn't be learning and practicing these teachings in order to build a reputation. And, you know, this is just reinforcing the personal existence view, that first fetter. But the Buddha is cluing you in to what is going to occur as a result of you practicing these teachings, that your wholesome reputation is going to spread. And he's saying spread against the wind, meaning spread far and wide. That even though there's going to be people potentially in your community that will be hateful and hostile or aggressive or think unkind things of you. That's just impermanence. But as you practice more and more, and you interact with people in your community more and more, people get used to you functioning in this way. Even if it is just at a 7-Eleven and a three-second comment to have a wonderful day to somebody, more and more as you do this in your community, the word spreads about how polite, kind, friendly, and respectful you are, and you'll find it a lot easier to interact in your community because then people will interact with you in that way. And then as you experience and need certain business opportunities, whether it's a job or if you're an entrepreneur and you have business contacts that you need to conduct yourself. As you conduct yourself through these good, wholesome teachings, this reputation will precede you is what we typically say nowadays. That's essentially what the Buddha is explaining here is that your good, wholesome reputation will precede you. It will spread against the wind Uh, so that it'll spread far and wide. And then you'll find that it's much easier to accomplish things in the world when you're functioning through these good, wholesome teachings. Whereas if we're hostile, aggressive, and bitter, this is going to make it very much a struggle and difficult for you to function in your community because people look at you in this very negative way based on your hostility, aggression, and bitterness. And then conversely, as you function more and more wholesomely through these wise teachings, then you'll experience improved results. So the Buddha is just cluing you into that. And one of the aspects of that he's talking about here is, of course, the five precepts, Practicing those will knock down a significant amount of unwholesome and unwise decisions. But then he's also talking about practicing generosity, because as you practice generosity of giving and sharing, this will help you to develop a wholesome reputation. Again, you shouldn't be practicing that in order to get a wholesome reputation, but the Buddha is just explaining to you that that's what will occur, so that as it's occurring, you'll understand why, so then that reinforces your decision to continue practicing the good wholesome teachings that you're practicing. What questions do you guys have on this chapter?
3: It does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir.
1: Okay. So we go down to the next chapter, 44, which is titled, When unwholesome monks are strong, wholesome monks are weak. Monks, when robbers are strong, kings are weak. At that time, the king is not at ease when re-entering his capital, or when going out, or when touring the outlying provinces. At that time, Brahmins and householders, too, are not at ease when re-entering their towns and villages, or when going out, or when attending to work outside. So, too, when unwholesome monks are strong, wholesome monks are weak, At that time, the wholesome monks sit silently in the midst of the community, or they resort to the outlying provinces. This is for the harm of many people, for the unhappiness of many people, for the ruin, harm, and suffering of many people, of heavenly beings and humans. Monks, when kings are strong, robbers are weak. At that time, the king is at ease when re-entering his capital, and when going out, and when touring the outlying provinces. At that time, Brahmins and householders, too, are at ease when re-entering their towns and villages, and when going out, and when attending to work outside. So too, when wholesome monks are strong, unwholesome monks are weak. At that time, the unwholesome monks sit silently in the midst of the community, or they depart for other regions. This is for the welfare of many people for the peacefulness of many people, for the good, welfare and peacefulness of many people, of heavenly beings and human beings." Okay, so here, oftentimes when people think about Buddhist monks or people who are into these type of things, they just kind of think that everybody must be wholesome. But that would be permanence if that was actually true. So we know that that's not true. That even during the lifetime of the Buddha, with these teachings being very strong and vibrant in the world, There were monks who were very wholesome and very wise and practicing the upright way, as the Buddha describes it, or the straight way. And then there were monks who were doing unwholesome things. They might have shaved their head, they might have put on robes, but they were probably complacent and doing unwholesome things in the world. So the Buddha is explaining this, and when he talks in other parts of his teachings and he talks about making offerings, he talks about making offerings to virtuous practitioners, because that's what's going to support these teachings coming into the world in more and more vibrant ways. Well, the same thing here is what he's saying is when the wholesome practitioners are strong, then the wholesome ones are weak, meaning that the teachings aren't being very visible in the world because the wholesome monks are remaining quiet and they're not standing up and sharing the teachings that would lead to wholesome conduct. So, therefore, this unwholesomeness comes over the world or over your community because these teachers or these ordained practitioners or whomever is seeking, uh, people are seeking guidance from for teachings, it's going to now have this unwholesomeness as part of it. And this is going to be spread throughout the community because the wholesome individuals are quiet and they're not really sharing the teachings in the way that the Buddha recommends. But then conversely, when the wholesome ordained practitioners and the wholesome teachings come into the world through being strong and vibrant and being shared widely in the world, then people can understand the real wisdom behind these teachings. And then the unwholesome practitioners or ordained practitioners tend to be weak and kind of go by the wayside and become silent so what the buddha is saying here is is maintain the wholesomeness maintain the strength of the community because as long as we allow the unwholesomeness to come into the community this is almost like a bacteria or a virus that eats away at the community so by having strong practitioners are practicing the teachings and strong teachers, not strong in terms of strength or power, but strong in terms of their wisdom and practice of these teachings, then as new students come into the community, it's much easier for them to observe that, yeah, all these people are so friendly and kind and polite and respectful, and they can kind of see how to practice amongst a community of individuals who are wholesome. And then the unwholesomeness kind of goes by the wayside. But if we allow a community to become unwholesome and that's the strong qualities that are pervasive in the community, then it's very challenging for people to be able to see what is actually the way of practice in order to be able to then practice in order to get to enlightenment. And you might see this in your community if you've seen kind of like one tragic event happen in your country, and then there's kind of like this repeated copycatting of unwholesome actions and activities. Um, And then conversely, if you see a community where there's certain wholesome things that are happening, then people will tend to kind of use that as an example and they will kind of step up and kind of become more and more wholesome. So here the Buddha is just providing guidance to help people understand that because once he's gone and things start to shift and change, if a collection of unwholesome monks get together and kind of take over a certain town, then the wholesome monks are going to remain quiet, and this is for the detriment and the harm of the people of that community. But if the wholesome practitioners are out there and practicing the teachings and sharing the teachings into a community, now this wholesomeness can come into the community. And that's where the Buddha says that this is for the good welfare and peacefulness of many people. Because now, as we were just talking earlier, people can use this wholesome practicing practitioners as a role model or an example of how to model these teachings and how to practice them more readily. What questions do you guys have on this chapter?
3: It does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir.
1: Okay, so now we go to chapter 45.
3: Yes, sir. Um, Ways to eliminate unwholesome people. The perfectly enlightened one told Brahman Kutadanta about the story of the King Mahavajita, calling his chaplain to instruct him on how to make a great sacrifice. The chaplain replied, your majesty's country is overrun by thieves. It is severely damaged. Villages and towns are being destroyed. The countryside is infested with criminals. If your majesty were to tax this region, that would be the wrong thing to do. Suppose your majesty were to think, I will get rid of this disease of robbers by executions and imprisonment, or by confiscation, threats, and punishment by sending them away from the country. The disease would not be properly ended. Those who survived would later harm your majesty's country. However, with this plan, you can completely eliminate the disease. To those in the kingdom who are engaged in cultivating crops and raising cattle, let your majesty distribute grain and food for livestock. To those in trade, give capital to those in government service, assign proper living wages. Then those people being intent on their own occupations will not harm kingdom. Your Majesty's revenues will be great. The land will be tranquil and not overrun by thieves. And the people with joy in their hearts playing with their children will reside in open houses.
1: All right. Thank you, Miranda. So when I describe this to students, uh, rather than go through this whole discourse, although this discourse provides great details and provides the teachings that help you understand this, what I describe this as is accentuating the positive. If we see people that are doing unwholesome things like our children or people in our life and we just look to punish them, then this is just going to create more and more problems because then the people feel like we're being Uh, hateful or we're doing harmful things to people. But when we see our children or people in our life doing wholesome or wise things, if we accentuate that positive and kind of compliment them or perhaps give them gifts or things like this and kind of share our appreciation for the wholesome and wise things that they're doing, this is actually going to promote better results in your life. Here, the Buddha is talking about it in terms of a whole kingdom. So you can think about this in terms of a country. Oftentimes, the way that people think conduct or behavior is changed in a country is to punish. And if we make all these laws and people don't follow our laws, we will punish them. And then this will solve the problem. But this never solves the problem. This just makes things worse and worse and worse as the Buddha is describing it as a disease. Instead, the way that you need to function in order to eliminate from a country or from a population of people or even just within your own home is the way that you eliminate this disease of unwholesome conduct and unwise decisions is you accentuate the positive. When people are doing wholesome things, you reward that. And the Buddha is describing it here as the king observes that people are raising crops and cattle and grain and food and Uh, they're involved in business and trade, that instead, when those things are happening, the king should essentially accentuate that and kind of give gifts in order to reward these people for the good work that they're doing. And then those people that are into unwholesome things are like, hey, what happened? Why Why am I not getting all of that stuff from the king? Oh, I need to improve my conduct. Let me improve my conduct. And now when I'm doing these wholesome things like cultivating crops and things like this, Now, this will precipitate people and incentivize people to do wholesome things because they're interested in receiving this benefit from the king, for example. So like I mentioned, it's the same thing in your household. If you see your children that are argumentative and squabbling and doing different things, if you just focus on the punishment side of that, then this is going to precipitate negative attention. And oftentimes children will continue to do those negative things just to get that attention from their parents. But instead, if you focus 95, 98% of your time when you observe your children doing wholesome things or wise things, if you reward that, even with just your words or a high five or a hug or a kiss or a rub on the head, you know, that a girl, that a boy, or however you decide to do that, then this is going to accentuate the positive and then they're going to be more inclined to do those things. So we can do this on a personal level. And people who are politicians or involved in the responsibility of running a country or a government can learn from this, too, that if you just create laws and punish people, this doesn't eliminate the craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind. This doesn't incentivize people to do wholesome things. Instead, they need to see the example that when people are doing wholesome things, they get rewarded for that. So you know what? Maybe I will do those things, too. But if all we do is punish people, imprison people, or as it's talked about here, executing people, then those people who survive, those relatives, are going to be hateful because now their family and friends have been imprisoned and have been executed. So now there's going to be a rise of anger from those people against the king in this case or against the government or things like this or if you punish your kids and you only focus on punishing your children now they're going to be hateful towards you because they feel like they're being punished whereas if you reward them accentuate the positive for the things that people are doing in a community or that your children are doing, then they're going to be more inclined to do those things more frequently. So you should always be looking to accentuate the positive with the understanding that sometimes you're going to need to talk with the people around you about things for them to improve in order to bring their practice up to an improved state. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter?
3: Yes, sir. On YouTube, Max Goldberg asks... Is it possible to accentuate positive too much?
1: Yes. If you do extensive amount of praise, then the child's mind or whoever you're spending time with, your employees, your life partner, or what have you, can get attached to this praise. And then they're only doing this activity for the praise. So when you first get started with training somebody like this, you might... Praise them kind of two or three times like back to back to kind of show them what you're doing and then let them do that same thing without any praise so that now they're doing it just because they know it's the right thing to do and it's the wholesome thing to do. And you don't praise what they're doing for a few times. Uh, This way their mind doesn't crave the permanence of continuous and ongoing praise because you would like to incentivize them to do things enough with your praise, but then you would like to step back and let them do those things based on their own decisions because they see that it's a wise thing to do. And they won't get that if you constantly praise. So you might initially with a new thing that you're working on with somebody, you might initially kind of praise them more frequently and then kind of fade that away for a while and then praise them every once in a while and then kind of fade that away. And then you get to the point where you don't need to praise that at all anymore. Um, It might just be a simple thank you. I appreciate that or things like that. Uh, So yes, it would be possible to praise too much and you should be observant of that uh, and ensure that you're Uh, Kind of uh, practicing that in the middle way, just like we do everything else But initially you might need to kind of get things underway and Get the ball rolling with a certain amount of praise to get things moving in the right direction
3: Thank you, sir Mm -hmm. Also When we do have to address I guess I shouldn't say have to when we are addressing unwholesome behaviors is there a way with skillful speech when addressing unwholesome thoughts speech or actions from another person to not be negative towards this but still allow them to see how they could change their thoughts speech or actions to be more aligned with a wholesome way of interacting with the world
1: yes so the first thing i'll say about that is the only time that we should consider that we need to to share teachings to help somebody is if we're in a role of doing that so for example when i was an employer i was a boss there was times where i needed to teach my employees how to improve uh, or like as a parent right or as an actual teacher if it's just a co-worker relationship or if it's a neighbor or something like this we shouldn't feel like we are in the role of teaching this person we can actually still be effective but Depending on the relationship, we might have to see if they're open to suggestions or advice. But there are some situations where we're for sure designated and it's our role to now share teachings with this person. And rather than being degrading and demoralizing and telling them they're a bad person and things like this, what I tend to do is I focus on the decisions that they're making. Rather than them as a person and saying, you're wrong, I'll say, you know, I'm not sure that I agree with the decisions that you've made here. I would like to talk about these decisions and see if you know we can understand them better and perhaps you can learn a bit more wisdom about the decisions that you're making. So it's always about the decisions that my son is making, for example, rather than him as a person. He's never feeling depleted or deflated or diminished when he comes out of our conversation, like he's a bad person or he's an unwholesome person, for example. Instead, it's about cultivating wisdom and making sure that he looks at his decisions and casting that in a positive way. So In the past, when I was helping him work out his right speech with his mom, for example, if he would speak in unkind ways, I would sometimes say, you know, let's put a pause on this conversation that you're having with your mom right now. Let's talk about this. Do you feel like you're talking with your mom in the best way? Is this wise? Is this going to produce wholesome results for you talking to her in this way? So I'm kind of asking him questions so that he can look at his own conduct and then he can teach himself essentially. Because people generally know kind of if they're speaking in a in a polite, kind of friendly, respectful way or not. And oftentimes once there's a certain amount of teachings on board, it's a matter of just posing the right questions and getting them to look at their own conduct. And then they're gonna be much more readily willing to listen to themselves as they teach themselves so you just kind of pose the right questions to help them be insightful and look at their own conduct and if that situation my son was like yeah i think i'm talking to mom just fine this is the way i always talk to her and then i might say well you know i disagree you know i notice that you're being a little bit harsh you're kind of being a little bit uh, demanding and asking her things Why don't you try to do this again? We'll kind of restart this where you can initiate the conversation again and think about some ways that you can talk to mom without being so demanding and so controlling about getting what you want. Instead, focus on communicating in a way that is more loving and more kind and respectful to your mom. So I never tell Bailan exactly what to say or what to do, but I'm giving him teachings to think about that he can then work with that wisdom and then he can come up with his own words through his own personality, his own character, and then he's more likely to repeat those things if he's come up with it on himself with him uh, on his own. Whereas if I just give him pre-stocked things to say, like I want you to say it this way or I want you to say it that way, then he has to remember those things. Whereas if he comes up with it himself and he's taught himself essentially just through the guidance of me saying, you know, I think you can be less controlling and less demanding here. You can be a bit more respectful with your mom. Then he can find the right way to do that. And in some cases, I had to share that and then he would speak and he was a little bit better than he was in the past, uh, in the previous aspect of the conversation, but he wasn't quite where he needed to be. So after he would say what he was going to say, I'll say, you know, that's certainly an improvement by I can see that you're doing better with that. But now let me share this guidance with you. And then I would share a little bit more guidance. And I would say, okay, now, now why don't you try to do this again? And then sometimes we would laugh and joke about this, of replaying a conversation with mom. And mom would get into it too. And she would smile. And she would pretend, you know, like if, if he was saying something very lovely and very wonderful, she would get like this big smile and big eyes and, you know, be reaching her arms out to hug him. Uh, Whereas if he wasn't quite there yet, she would kind of look like confused, like maybe he wasn't quite there with his speech yet. So you can kind of make this playful and enjoyable too, where it's not domineering and punishment and you're wrong and you did this wrong and this wrong and that wrong. And people leave the conversation feeling miserable. You can have fun with it and enjoy it and cast things in a positive light showing your children or showing your employees or showing people the wise way of this path essentially what you're doing is you're holding a light and you're showing them the wisdom of this path by helping the path become more and more visible and now with the wisdom that you share with them let them make their own freedom of decisions, their own freedom of choice, their own free will to come up with the sentences and the words that they would like to put together in order to practice the wisdom that you just shared with them. And this will kind of make it their decision rather than you being demanding or controlling and telling them what to do.
3: Wonderful. Well understood. Thank you, sir.
1: Mm -hmm. You're welcome.
3: Uh, It does not appear that there are any other questions at this time.
1: Okay, so now we go to chapter 46.
3: Um, sir, Chrissy has volunteered to read. Would it be all right if she read the first half of chapter 46 and then I'll read the second half?
1: Absolutely, feel free.
4: Thank you. Um, I might need help with that first word that starts with a K the monks of.
1: I was going to have trouble with that word, too, so I looked looked to Miranda. Yeah, there we go.
4: (laughs) Thank you. The monks of Kosambi. At the time, a certain monk accused another monk that he had fallen into wrongdoing and did not see that wrongdoing as a wrongdoing. He had a group of monks who took part with this monk carried out a formal act of suspension against that specific monk for not seeing the wrongdoing. Then there were also a group of monks who took the side of the suspended monk and sided with him. The community of monks was divided. They could not carry out the observance together. Now at that time, monks, causing fights, causing arguments, falling into disputes in the dining hall, in the middle of the house, behaved unsuitably towards one another in actions, in speech, they came to blows. Having expressed disapproval of them, having given reasoned talk, the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks saying, enough monks, no arguing no arguments, no fights, no contention, no disputing. When he had spoken thus, a certain monk who spoke what was not the teachings spoke thus to the perfectly enlightened one. Venerable sir, let the perfectly enlightened one, the master of the teachings, wait. Venerable sir, let the perfectly enlightened one, unconcerned live intent on residing in ease here. And now we will be held accountable for this argument fight contention disputing. And the second time the perfectly enlightened one spoke thus to these monks, enough monks, no arguments, no fights, no contention, no disputing. And the second time the monk who spoke what was not the teachings spoke thus to the perfectly enlightened one. Venerable sir, let the perfectly enlightened one, the master of the teachings wait. Venerable sir, let the perfectly enlightened one unconcerned live intent on residing in ease here and now. We will be held accountable for this argument, fight, contention, disputing. Then the perfectly enlightened one address the monks sitting Prince Digavu's story as an example. Brahmadatta, the king of Kassi had done him much mischief. He had killed the prince's parents. As Prince Digavu had opportunity to show his anger by killing Brahmadatta, from the king of kasi he thought of his father's last words do not you dear digavu look far or close for dear digavu angry moods are not calmed by anger angry moods dear digavu are calmed by non-anger do not look Far means do not bear anger long. Do not look close means do not hastily break with a friend. Thus, the life of Bharamadatta, the king of Kasi, was granted by Prince Digabu. Then Brahmadatta, the king of Kasi, gave back the prince's troops and vehicles and territory and storehouses and barns of grain, and he gave him his daughter. Now monks, if such is the patience and generosity of kings, who wield the scepter, who wield the sword herein, monks, Let your light shine forth so that you who have gone forth in these teachings and discipline, which are thus well taught, may be equally patient and gentle. But none of these monks listened to the perfectly enlightened one. Then the perfectly enlightened one, having dressed in the morning, taking his bowl and robe, entered Kasambi for alms food, Having walked for alms food in Kasambi, bringing back his alms bowl after his meal, having packed away his lodging, taking his bowl and robe and standing in the midst of the community, he spoke these verses. When all together they shout, none feels unwise. Though the community is divided, one might think unwise, With wandering wisdom, the wise one understands all the field of talk. With mouths wide open to full extent, what leads them on they know not. They who in thought argue this, that man has abused me, has hurt, has defeated me, has me devastated, these angers not calmed. They who do not argue this, that man has abused me, has hurt, has defeated me, has me devastated. In them, anger is calmed. No, not by anger are angry moods calmed here and at that time, but by non-anger they are calmed. This is an ageless, endless natural law. People do not understand that here we are confused in life and time, but they who herein do understand, therefore thereby their fights are calmed. Criminals who injure and kill, steal cattle, horses, and wealth, who plunder realms for There is unity. Why should there not be for you. If one finds a friend with whom to go forward fascinated in the well residing of these teachings appropriately surmounting dangers one and all with joy go forward with him mindfully finding none appropriate with whom to go forward. None in the well residing fascinated in these teachings as King quits the conquered realm, go forward lonely as a bull elephant in an elephant jungle. Better to go forward one alone. There is no companionship with The unwise go forward lonely, unconcerned, doing no evil as a bull elephant in an elephant jungle. Then the perfectly enlightened one, having spoken these verses as he was standing in the midst of the community, approached (laughs) Balakalonakara village and the eastern bamboo grove. Along the way, he had met a few of his senior disciples. Walking in the tour, in due course, he arrived at Perilea. The perfectly enlightened ones stayed there at Perilea, in the guarded woodland thicket at the root of the heavenly sal tree. There was a large bull elephant named Paralia approached the perfectly enlightened one having approached he set out by means of his trunk drinking water for the perfectly enlightened one and water for washing and he kept the grass down. Then the perfectly enlightened one set out on tour for Savetti. Then the household practitioners of Kasambi thought, these masters, the monks of Kasambi, have done us much, much mischief. The perfectly enlightened one was is departing. Harassed by these, come, we should neither greet the masters, the monks of Kasambi, nor should we stand up before them, nor should we greet them, with joined palms, or perform the proper duties. We should not appreciate, respect, admire, or honor them, and neither should we give them alms, food when they come to us. Thus, they, when they are neither appreciated, respected, admired, nor honored by us, will depart unappreciated, or they will leave the community, or they will restore friendly relations, relations for themselves to the perfectly enlightened one. Then the monks of Kasambi, as they were not being appreciated, respected, admired, or honored by the household practitioners of Kasambi spoke thus, come now you venerable sir, let us having gone to Saveti, settle this moral question in the perfectly enlightened one's presence. Then the monks of Kasambi having packed away their lodgings, taking their bowls and robes approached Savati. Then in due course, the monks of Kasambi arrived at Savati. They agreed to stop the dispute. The monks, the monk who had been suspended agreed that there was a wrongdoing and he had fallen. Those monks who were taking the side of the suspended one, restored that monk. Since monks, that monk had fallen and was suspended, but see and is restored, well then monks achieve harmony in the community for settling that case. And thus monks, should it be achieved, one and all should gather together. If the achieving of harmony in the community for settling this case is pleasing to the venerable ones, they should be silent. He to whom it is not pleasing should speak. Harmony in the community for settling that case is is achieved by the community. Arguments in the community are put down. Fighting in the community is put down. It is pleasing to the venerable ones. Therefore, they are silent. Observance may be carried out at once. The training guidelines recited.
1: All right. Thank you, Chrissy. So this is a very long part of the discourse that Chrissy read for us. This is great. There's a lot of big words in there. I wouldn't be able to pronounce those words myself. But this is depicting a situation that's occurring where essentially there's a monk who does something that is opposite of the teachings. He doesn't see his wrongdoing. Some other monks are trying to help him to see this wrongdoing. And while they're doing that, some other monks kind of get on this person's side. And now there's this argument and this squabble. And the Buddha tries to explain to them, okay, enough, let it go. I mean, he does this two times and they're still arguing and being argumentative. And the Buddha eventually gets to the point where he decides to leave and depart. And this is to the opposite liking of the household practitioners in that area because they're interested in having the Buddha stay in that area so that they can learn the teachings directly from the Buddha. So when the Buddha leaves, because of this Argument the household practitioners are like, Oh, we know what to do. We're just not going to support these ordained practitioners with food and clothing and things like this and places to stay. We're not going to show our appreciation and our gratitude because they're disgruntled and arguing amongst themselves. And then they're either going to have to fix that problem amongst themselves and fix the problem with the Buddha, and then things will be resolved. So that's essentially what the household practitioners choose to do is to not support these monks. And then they realize like, Hey, we're not getting any food here. We better move on. So they ended up moving on and actually making amends amongst themselves in with the Buddha, and they realize that this monk was doing a certain particular wrongdoing. And as part of this, the Buddha delivers a teaching here where he shares that, you know, when people are doing unwise things, they don't necessarily realize it. That's essentially what he's saying here, that as you're doing unwise things, you don't necessarily realize that there's just this complaining of these monks, complaining, 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 but they don't realize that they're actually doing things that are unwise. And then the Buddha eventually gets to a teaching where he essentially says that anger uh, isn't eliminated through further anger, that it's eliminated through being calm and peaceful. And this is something that you can practice in your life as well. Where uh, I'm trying to find, here it is right here. No, not by anger are angry moods calmed here and at any time, but by non-anger are they calmed. This is an ageless, endless, natural law. So you can incorporate this into your practice, that if you see other people being argumentative and aggressive or hostile, it would be unwise for you to then match that back because that's just going to escalate the situation and make it worse. This is where I talk about having a rubber ball. And if somebody bounces a rubber ball around in the room and you pick up that rubber ball and you bounce it around and then they pick it up and bounce it around, next thing you know, you got all these rubber balls bouncing around in the room and it's whizzing by your head and you're not quite sure what's going on. But if somebody bounces this rubber ball and you just watch it roll into the corner and it loses its energy, then there's no rubber balls bouncing around so it's the same thing as if someone's being argumentative and hostile and aggressive and you just ignore that or you just walk away from it then that's what's going to calm this down by you being angry or hostile back to this individual it's just going to escalate the situation so the buddha is explaining how to calm down the situation is by calming your mind and not allowing the fight to continue but instead by training the mind to be restrained and not come back with anger and hostility, which if the mind has craving, anger, and ignorance, this is gonna be challenging for you in certain situations. If you have attachment, if you have your anger arising, but this is where your training of breathing mindfulness meditation, of generosity, training the mind to let go of craving, anger, and ignorance, and particularly that craving, desire, attachment, the more you train the mind to let that mental longing and strong eagerness go, You'll be able to restrain the mind and you'll realize that me being argumentative here with someone who's also argumentative isn't going to solve the problem at all. Oftentimes there's the ego in there making the mind feel like if I can just come up over the top of this person and I can prove to this person that I'm right and they're wrong, this will solve the problem and they'll be quiet but they've also got ego in their mind and they're not gonna stand for that. So this ego in this anger just goes and goes and goes and goes and the situation just becomes more and more elevated. And this is where oftentimes it can come to, you know, punching or hitting or throwing things. People have even gotten weapons and murdered people as the escalation of the argument continues. But instead what the Buddha is explaining here is the way to calm this down is to respond with non-anger and what non-anger is is loving kindness or the genuine interest in seeing all beings be well and in some cases that mean that you just that might mean that you just walk away or in other situations you might say some calming words but oftentimes when somebody's mind is so elevated into anger, hostility with argumentative speech, there's nothing you can say to calm them down. Oftentimes the best thing to do is to just walk away. And you'll need to decide that on a case-by-case basis of what you choose to do and how you choose to respond. But don't allow the mind to react in negative ways in this situation with hostility and argumentative speech because that's not going to calm things down and that's what the Buddha did here. You see that when the argument was going on with the monks he didn't jump in and try to you know separate them and you know with hostility and anger he just said okay enough you know uh, let's be done with this. Essentially is what he said is let's just be done with this and then he said that twice and they didn't respond to him they didn't listen because their anger was too elevated so then he just decided to leave and walk away and that's the way to just move away from it. And then the people learn like, hey, as long as there's argumentative speech around, you're not gonna be around and you're not gonna be in that situation. And then those people learn more and more to not do that. And it's gonna take a number of times of you doing this where the people around you start to learn that every time I become argumentative, this person leaves and I don't like that. I would like them to be around so we can talk. So this is a way to kind of subtly help somebody through eliminating their anger is by them seeing every time they get angry and hostile, you just walk away. Then eventually they can potentially train their mind to not do that. Um, when you just choose to walk away from that situation. So that's one of the things that's being described here. There's a lot of other things that are happening as well. So I'll just open up to any of the questions that you guys might have. You can put into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Um, Yes, sir. It is
3: understood that sometimes walking away is the best course of action is the most wise course of action, but knowing about impermanence that will not 100% of the time be the case, how are we to discern what response would be the most wise response in keeping this anger from escalating?
1: Yeah, so it's important to understand that when someone else is having anger and they're being argumentative your role in that situation is not to calm them down. Oftentimes that's what we think our role is, is to try to calm this person down. You can't calm them down. They have to choose to become calm on their own. So if you have the mindset that you're trying to calm this person down, then you might feel like there's certain actions you need to take in order to calm them down. But instead you need to realize the responsibility to calm down is with them. And that oftentimes, words and actions from you is actually just going to make the situation worse. So what you should do is instead of having the mindset of your role as the calm this person down, instead, you should think with the mindset of my role in this situation is to maintain my own contentedness, to maintain my own calmness, to protect my own mind. And in that situation, what's the best thing for you to do? And that's why oftentimes the best thing to do is walk away. Because as long as you allow your six sense bases, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, bodily contact and the mind to stay in the situation, you might observe a rising of your own anger. If you have anger, that's still in the mind. If you see your own anger arising, what you should do there is cut that off and let that go. But what you should function and what you should consider your role in these situations is to protect your own contentedness. And oftentimes, that's removing your sense bases out of the situation. And in that situation, you haven't caused any harm where you remove the sense bases or this body, this mind out of the situation. You haven't caused any harm. Now, if this person is craving and they try to latch onto you or they try to pull you back, you know, that's where you can then choose to what you're going to do next and in each situation it's going to be different it's going to be unique but if you're in relationships where someone's being that aggressive with you and not allowing you to walk away from a conversation freely then you should probably evaluate whether that's wise relationship for you to be in or not and you might need to make some changes in your life about about the relationship itself so you should be able to walk away and that can be a very wise thing to do In other situations, you might just stand there quietly. If you have composure of the mind, you might be able to just stand there quietly. You know, I did this early on when my wife was training and my gamma was coming back to me and she was yelling and hollering at me. Sometimes I would walk away. Oftentimes I would. But sometimes I would just stand there quietly and maintain my composure and just let her yell and holler and yell and holler. And then when she was done, from there, I might ask her are you finished in a very loving and compassionate way and then she might say some more things and then eventually when she's done i might decide to just walk away after she's yelled and hollered and screamed but this was many years in the past that we don't have that going on at our home anymore but oftentimes walking away can be the wisest thing to do other times you might just need to stay there and restrain the mind Uh, but if you're having difficulties restraining your mind and you feel your anger coming up that's where it's best to just kind of uh, politely move away from the situation.
3: Yes. Thank you, sir. Mm And it does not appear there are any other questions at this time. Oh, wait, I see Chrissy has her hand raised. Let's go to her for her question.
1: Sure.
4: Sorry, I was a little bit slow on raising my hand. Um, I have a question about if you could go back down where it talks about the elephant, the bull-eyed elephant. Um, what that was in reference to. I was a little confused there about a relationship. There's no comparison with the unwise, go forward lonely, unconcerned, doing no evil, as a bull-eyed elephant in an elephant jungle.
1: Okay. So better to go forward one alone there is no companionship with the unwise going forward lonely unconcerned doing no evil as a bull elephant in an elephant jungle so here what the buddha is saying is it's better for you to walk away and be alone rather than be in companionship with people who are unwise because if you stay around if someone's argumentative and they're angry and they're hostile the buddha is explaining them as unwise because they don't have the wisdom of training their mind and controlling their mind. So he's saying it's better to go away alone and be alone rather than stay around someone who's unwise. Um, And what a bull elephant is, is, you know, of course, they're, you know, they're a leader. They're, They're oftentimes alone. They don't stay with the herd. A bull elephant goes off on their own, doing no evil as a bull elephant. A bull elephant is going to be all by themselves so the buddha saying you know don't do any evil in this situation where someone's being argumentative don't do any hostile or aggressive things but instead just go away and be alone away from the herd like a bull elephant okay
4: thank you sir i understand
1: and the only reason why he says go forward lonely is because in the unenlightened state there can be potentially some loneliness there once the mind's enlightened there isn't going to be any loneliness but also being sure that when you walk away from a situation where there's argumentative speech be unconcerned because you can know that you haven't caused any harm by walking away sometimes people feel like it's rude to walk away but that's just because there's attachment There isn't any speech or any action that's harming this other person. If somebody walks away from a conversation and somebody deems that to be rude, that's because of their own craving. They're wanting to keep this person in the conversation. In that situation, there hasn't been any speech. There hasn't been any actions that's harmful. So you can be unconcerned in walking away from a situation. And that's what the Buddha is saying, unconcerned here.
4: That's helpful. Thank you.
1: hmm You're welcome.
3: And Pierce, that is all the questions that are being asked for this chapter, sir.
1: Okay, so now we go to 47.
3: Yes, sir. Uh, where should a gift be given? First discourse. Venerable sir, where should a gift be given? Wherever one's mind has confidence, great king. But, Venerable Sir, where does what is given become of great fruit? This is one question, Great King. Where should a gift be given? And this another. Where does what is given become of great fruit? What is given to one who is virtuous, practicing moral conduct, Great King, is of great fruit. Not so what is given to an unwholesome person. Now then, Great King, I will question you about this same point. Answer as you see fit. What do you think, great king? Suppose you are at war and a battle is about to take place. Then a Katya youth would arrive, one who is untrained, unskillful, unpracticed, inexperienced, fearful, terrified, frightened, quick to flee. Would you employ that man? And would you have any use for such a man? Surely not, venerable sir. Then a Brahmin youth would arrive, a Vesa youth, a pseudo youth who is untrained, unskillful, unpracticed, inexperienced, fearful, terrified, frightened, quick to flee. Would you employ that man? And would you have any use for such a man? Surely not, venerable sir. What do you think, great king? Suppose you are at war and a battle is about to take place. Then a Katya youth would arrive. One who is trained, skillful, practiced, experienced, brave, courageous, bold, ready to stand his place. Would you employ that man, and would you have any use for such a man? Surely I would, venerable sir. Then a Brahman youth would arrive, a Vesa youth, a suda youth, one who is trained, skillful, practiced, experienced, brave, courageous, bold, ready to stand his place. Would you employ that man, and would you have any use for such a man? Surely I would, venerable sir. So too, great king, When a person has gone forth from the household life into homelessness, no matter from what plan, if he has abandoned five factors and possesses five factors, then what is given to him is of great fruit. What five factors have been abandoned? Sensual desire has been abandoned. Ill will has been abandoned. Complacency has been abandoned. Restlessness and worry have been abandoned. Doubt has been abandoned. What five factors does he possess? He possesses virtue of one beyond training, concentration of one beyond training, wisdom of one beyond training, liberation of one beyond training, wisdom and vision of liberation of one beyond training. He possesses these five factors. Thus, what is given to one who has abandoned five factors and who possesses five factors is of great fruit. As a king intent on waging war, Would you employ a youth skilled with the bow, one endowed with strength and vigor, but not the coward on account of his birth? So even though he be of low birth, one should honor the person of noble conduct, the wise man in whom are established in the virtues of patience and gentleness. One should build delightful sanctuaries and invite the learned to reside in them. One should build water tanks in the forest and causeways over rough terrain. With a confident mind, one should give to those of upright character. Give food and drink and things to eat, clothing to wear and bed and seats. For as the rain cloud thundering, covered in lightning with a hundred crests, pours down its rain upon the earth, flooding both the plain and the valley, so the wise man, confident, learned, having had a meal prepared, satisfies with food and drink, the ascetic who gives on all, lives on alls. Rejoicing, he distributes gifts, claims, give, give. For that is his thundering, like the sky when it rains, that shower of merit so vast will pour down on the giver.
1: All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is using this story that this particular individual, this king would understand. So this is a common way that you teach is you explain something that somebody already understands through their role or their occupation or something like that. And then when they understand that and they confirm that, then a teacher or a Buddha in this case is going to then show his teachings as it relates to what this individual already knows, this king understanding who he's going to employ in order to uh, fight and be a soldier, for example. So what the Buddha essentially gets to is how giving gifts to people who are virtuous and having abandoned the five hindrances. That's what these are here. Central desire, ill will, complacency, restlessness, and worry, and doubt. These are the hindrances that will hinder one from experiencing enlightenment and kind of stand in the way as obstacles. The 10 fetters or the 10 pollutions of mind that need to be eliminated in order to get to enlightenment. And most of these are actually part of the 10 fetters as well, but the Buddha talks about these things in different ways, depending on whether he's talking about it as an obstruction or an obstacle versus talking about it as one of the fetters or pollutions of mind. So the Buddha is helping this particular king understand who to give gifts to, because as a person who's maybe joining the path or maybe at a certain point in their path, they may not understand easily who they should actually practice and giving gifts to, and the Buddha is making that kind of easy for them to be able to see. So one who's eliminated central desire, ill will, complacency, restlessness, and worry, and doubt, the Buddha is saying, okay, this would be a wise person, someone who's abandoned this, this would be helpful for you to give a gift to them. And then the Buddha adds these five factors that somebody possesses. He says virtue or moral conduct beyond training. This means somebody who's already understood the moral conduct as part of the Eightfold Path, and now they're practicing that so well that there's no more training that they need to do. They're beyond training. That they have concentration, and they developed concentration as part of practicing the teaching so well that they now have focus and concentration beyond training. There's no more training that they need to do in order to cultivate more concentration. And wisdom Beyond training, meaning that they understand the teachings inside and out, backwards and forwards, and they're now beyond training based on the wisdom that they've cultivated. And liberation of one beyond training, this is someone whose mind is actually enlightened. These things that the Buddha is talking about is describing someone who's enlightened, but he's describing it in a very straightforward way that the average person can understand liberation of mind or enlightenment, an individual is not going to be irritated, they're not going to be frustrated, they're not going to be annoyed, they're not even going to have the slightest dislike. As you're interacting with a person, you shouldn't see any hostility, any uncomfortableness, any dislike, any kind of irritation or annoyance. Of course, not any of the strong feelings like anger and hostility and bitterness. Someone whose mind is liberated beyond training means that they're actually enlightened and they're not experiencing any discontent feelings whatsoever. And then the Buddha says, wisdom and vision of liberation beyond training. What this is, is that you have the wisdom of how to liberate the mind, and you can have the vision or the clarity to be able to see how to help other people to liberate the mind, that this is a person who's sharing the teachings. And he's saying this is somebody who would be wise to give gifts to. What questions do you guys have on this particular chapter?
3: Not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir.
1: Okay, so now we'll move to the next chapter which is chapter 48. Would you like me to read that one, Miranda?
3: Um, yes, sir. Please, if you could.
1: Sure. So the title here is, Where Should a Gift Be Given? Second Discourse. My family gives gifts, venerable sir, and those gifts are given to monks who are arahants or on the path to arahantship, those who are forest dwellers, alms food collectors, and wearers of rag robes. Since, householder, you are a household practitioner enjoying sensual pleasures, living at home in a house full of children, using sandalwood from kasi, wearing garlands, scents, and ointments, and receiving gold and silver. It is difficult for you to know these are otterhunts, enlightened beings, or on the path to otterhuntship, enlightenment. If, householder, a monk who is a forest dweller is restless, puffed up, conceited, talkative, rambling in his talk, muddle-minded, lacking clear comprehension, unconcentrated, with a wandering mind, with loose sense bases, then in this respect he is blameworthy, responsible for wrongdoing. But if a monk who is a forest dweller is not restless, puffed up, and conceited, is not talkative in rambling in his talk, but has mindfulness established, Clearly comprehends is concentrated with singleness of mind, with restrained sense bases. Then, in this respect, he is praiseworthy, deserving admiration or commendable. If a monk who resides on the outskirts of the village, if a monk who is an alms food collector, if a monk who accepts invitations to meals, if a monk who wears rag robes, or if a monk who wears rat wears robes given by householders, is restless, puffed up, conceited, talkative, rambling in his talk, muddle-minded, lacking clear comprehension, unconcentrated, with a wandering mind, with loose sense-spaces, then in this respect he is blameworthy, responsible for wrongdoing. But if a monk who resides on the outskirts of a village, if a monk who is an alms-food collector, if a monk who accepts invitations to meals, if a monk who wears rag robes, or if a monk who wears robes given by householders is not restless, puffed up, and conceited, is not talkative and rambling in his talk, but has mindfulness established, clearly comprehends, is concentrated with singleness of mind, with restrained sense bases, then in this respect, He is praiseworthy, deserving admiration, commendable. Come now, householder, give gifts to the community. When you give gifts to the community, your mind will be confident. When your mind is confident, with the breakup of the body after death, you will be reborn in a good destination, in a heavenly world. Venerable sir, from today onwards, I will give gifts to the community. So here the Buddha is giving guidance once again to an individual who doesn't understand how to determine whether somebody is an otter hunt or on the path to otter hunt ship. He's giving kind of this shorthand way of helping you to determine who should you support in terms of their practice to help you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment through practicing generosity, but also your offerings are helping that individual to then stay focused on their practice to get further and further in their practice and get closer and closer to enlightenment. So he's saying here that as a householder, this individual who's enjoying central pleasures, has a house full of children using sandalwood, which is kind of a little bit like an intoxicant, but not like a real strong one, that's wearing garlands, scents, ointments, receiving gold and silver, that they wouldn't necessarily know what an otter hunt is or an enlightened being is or on the path to otter huntship. So the Buddha says if somebody's restless, puffed up, conceited, talkative, rambling in his talk, muddle-minded, lacking clear comprehension, unconcentrated, with a wandering mind, with loose sense spaces, then this is a person who is not enlightened or is not close to enlightenment. And loose sense bases would be that they have craving through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, bodily contact in the mind. So because of this craving, desire, attachment, the mind is going to be muddle-minded or unconcentrated, lacking this clear comprehension. But on the contrary, the Buddha is saying if somebody isn't restless, if they aren't puffed up, if they aren't conceited, they're not just talkative and having frivolous speech or rambling in their talk, but they have mindfulness of so this awareness of mind. They have clear comprehension and concentration. They're practicing singleness of mind. You observe that their sense bases are restrained. They're not just craving through the senses. Then this is the type of person the Buddha is saying, okay, this is who you should give a gift to because they're further along on the path and They're either on the path to otter huntship or they're actually enlightened as an otter hunt. And this is kind of a shorthand way for someone who doesn't really fully understand how an enlightened being is practicing to be able to discern whether or not somebody's either practicing to become enlightened or they're actually enlightened. This is a way to kind of help you to see that very easily with some just basic criteria that the Buddha is explaining. What questions do you guys have on this chapter?
3: It does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir.
1: Okay, so now we go to chapter 49.
3: Yes, sir. Do not prevent another from giving. Vacha, one who prevents another from giving a gift creates an obstruction and stumbling block for three people. What three? He creates an obstruction to one, the donors acquiring merit, two, to the recipients gaining a gift, and three, Already, he has harmed and injured himself. One who prevents another from giving gifts creates creates an obstruction and stumbling block for these three people. But Vacha, I say that one acquires merit even if one throws away dishwashing water in a refuse stump or cesspit with the thought, may the living beings here sustain themselves with this. How much more then? Does one acquire merit when give one gives to human beings? However, I say that what is given to one of virtuous behavior is more fruitful than what is given to an unwholesome person. And the most worthy recipient is one who has abandoned five factors and possesses five factors. What five factors has he abandoned? <clears throat> one, sensual desire, two, ill will, three, complacency four, restlessness and worry, and five, doubt. These are the five factors that he has abandoned. And what five factors does he possess? One, the virtuous behavior, two, concentration, three, wisdom, four, liberation, and five, wisdom and vision of liberation one beyond training. These are the five factors that he possesses. It is in such a way, I say, that what is given to one who has abandoned five factors and possesses five factors is very fruitful.
1: All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here, the first part of this discourse talks about not preventing another person from giving. If somebody is choosing to practice generosity either towards the community of teachers and ordained practitioners or in any other aspect of life, you shouldn't be in a situation where you're restraining that person and stopping them from giving. If somebody has an interest to give, it's important for them to practice that generosity. And the Buddha is saying that if you were to try to prevent somebody from giving, then you've essentially harmed the donor from being able to acquire merit, that uh, the recipient of gaining a gift, and then you've harmed yourself as well, because you're trying to restrain this person from giving a gift. The Buddha says this in a way that helps you to understand the cultivation of merit, that even if you throw out dishwater outside with the thought of may these living beings sustain themselves with this, there's actually still some merit there because... The mind is doing this out of generosity. Of course, that's not the ideal way to practice generosity. You would like to be practicing generosity in a much higher quality than that. But the Buddha oftentimes is going to speak in these extremes for you to be able to see that even something like this of tossing out dishwater, for animals to eat or drink on the floor outside, there's some benefit in that because you have the intention of helping these beings through this dishwater that you're dumping out. And then the Buddha is explaining the same thing that we explored in a previous chapter, where he's saying essentially the individuals that you're looking to make gifts to for the community are people who have eliminated central desire, ill will, complacency, restlessness, and worry and doubt, And you would like to see that they possess virtuous behavior, concentration, wisdom, liberation, and wisdom and vision of liberation and how to guide people to liberation. And these are beyond training. This is going to be very fruitful and beneficial because by supporting this individual, now these teachings can come into the world for more and more people to benefit from them. What questions do you guys have on this chapter?
3: It does not appear that there are
1: any questions at this time, sir. Okay, and now the last one, chapter 50. A good and bad field. Monks, a seed sown in a field that possesses eight factors does not bring forth abundant fruits. Its fruits are not delicious, and it does not yield a profit. What eight? Here, the field has mounds and ditches. Two, it contains stones and gravel. Three, it is salty. Four, it is not deeply furrowed. Five, it does not have inlets for the water to enter. Six, it does not have outlets for excess water to flow out. Seven, it does not have irrigation channels. And eight, it does not have boundaries. A seed sown in a field that possesses these eight factors does not bring forth abundant fruits its fruits are not delicious and it does not yield a profit so too, monks a gift given to an aesthetic and brahmin who possesses eight factors is not of great fruit and benefit and it does not and it is not very brilliant and widespread what eight factors here the aesthetic and brahmins are of wrong view wrong intention wrong speech wrong action wrong livelihood, wrong effort, wrong mindfulness, and wrong concentration. A gift given to aesthetics and brahmin who are possessing these eight factors is not of great fruit and benefit, and it is not very brilliant or widespread. Monks, a seed sown in a field that possesses eight factors brings forth abundant fruits. Its fruits are delicious, and it yields a profit. What eight factors? Here, 1. The field does not have mounds and ditches. 2. It does not contain stones and gravel. 3. It is not salty. 4. It is deeply furrowed. 5. It has inlets for the water to enter. 6. It has outlets for excess water to flow out. 7. It has irrigation channels. And 8. It has boundaries. A seed sown in a field that possesses these eight factors brings forth abundant fruits. Its fruits are delicious, and it yields profit. So too, monks, a gift given to aesthetics and brahmins who possess eight factors is of great fruit and benefit. It is extraordinarily brilliant and widespread. What eight factors? Here, the aesthetics and brahmins are of right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort right mindfulness and right concentration a gift given to aesthetics and brahmin who possess these eight factors is of great fruit and benefit and it is extraordinarily brilliant and widespread so here once again the buddha is taking something that people already know which is cultivating fields and planting fields which would have been a understanding that many many people had during the lifetime of the buddha and he's taking what they understand about that and then relating it to the teaching so that they could see that in these situations of these eight factors that seeds don't grow and produce wholesome results, the same thing is if you provide gifts and offerings to individuals who have wrong view through wrong concentration, then this isn't going to promote beneficial outcomes in the community. Because if people are practicing wrong view, wrong intention, wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood, wrong effort, wrong mindfulness, and wrong concentration, then the teachings can't flourish in the community and people can't see what the good wholesome teachings are. But conversely, the Buddha explains these certain eight factors of a field that if a field has these factors, it will grow wonderful fruit that is delicious and yields a profit. In the same way, if we provide gifts to individuals who are practicing right view through right concentration, now this is very beneficial for the community because these individuals are being supported and now those teachings can come into the world more and more. So somebody who's practicing all of these teachings of the Eightfold Path, they will at least be close to the first stage of enlightenment or in the first stage of enlightenment and then they're continuing to make their journey beyond that which is going to be beneficial for the community like we were talking earlier in class to have this role model in the community but also Oftentimes, as people get to enlightenment, if they have the skill to teach, they might actually start sharing the teachings for the benefit of others, and this would be very beneficial to make offerings to those people so that the teachings can continue to shine and continue to flourish in the world. What questions do you guys have on this chapter?
3: does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir.
1: Okay. Well, as you guys see, this teaching on generosity, this book on generosity is very comprehensive. I think there's close to like 80 chapters or so in this book because generosity is so important for the cultivation of your practice and understanding how to practice generosity is one more aspect of wisdom that one cultivates on their way to enlightenment. So here, this last book, volume 13, even though it's the last book of the series, it's actually really important because by practicing generosity, you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment. So as you read these chapters, you'll continue to gain insight and gain wisdom on how to practice generosity. Next week, we're going to be in chapters 51 through chapter 60. So if you'd like to read those beforehand, you can and or after. Or if you'd like to just come to class and read them here, you can. But the longer you sit with the teachings, the more time the mind has to permeate and digest those, the more beneficial they'll be. So I recommend people read kind of like 10, 15 minutes a day and just kind of take in one or two chapters per day and then spread that out over the week. And you'll actually be able to sit and reflect with the teachings for a longer period of time and they'll permeate in the mind more readily so chapters 51 through 60 is what we'll be discussing next week tomorrow in our group learning program i'm going to be sharing with you guys the very last class of that retreat series harmony and relationships it's titled eradicating pollution of the mind eliminating the 10 fetters in this class i'm going to go piece by piece in each individual fetter explaining what it is And the solution of how to eliminate it. Because remember, the 10 fetters are the 10 individual detailed problems that the Buddha discovered in the unenlightened mind and what hinders you from experiencing enlightenment. So, in order to eradicate them or eliminate them, you would need to know exactly what these fetters are and what the solutions are in order to eliminate them. So, I'm going to be doing that in our class tomorrow. And if you can attend live, that's wonderful. If you can't for any reason, it's going to be Uh, recorded in YouTube and on the podcast, so you'll be able to listen to the replay. So then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing our meditation, which is loving kindness meditation. This week, we'll come together to encourage, support, and motivate each other in our meditation practice. So you're welcome to join any of these classes that you like, and keep in mind that these classes are going to be Restarting in January, on January 8th, we'll be restarting the group learning program. And on January 28th, we're going to be restarting the Polykin and an English study group. Even though you can join these classes at any time, you're welcome to join and you're invited to join. But oftentimes people like to start at the very beginning of the program. So if you'd like to do that, you have that opportunity coming up in January. So thank you all for your support. Thank you, Miranda and Chrissy, for joining. And those of you guys on live stream who are asking questions and moderating and reading, I really appreciate the support in class. And have a very lovely rest of your day and a lovely weekend. This is a holiday for some people that are celebrating Christmas. So have a very lovely holiday weekend, and we'll see you in a future class. Sawadee
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast.